Pasukim, Yechezkel. He's actually talking about something else, but Chazal constantly was it for what we want to talk about. The context is talking about something very specific. But Chazal understood it as a statement of uh, a statement of, of, of principle. It's so in understanding what it means to be a Jew. And there are other Medrashim, which you're familiar with as well. Rashi brings three days of why Abraham is called Ha'ivri. One of them is, There's a long-standing principle and idea and heartfelt thing in Yiddishkeit, both historically and, and um, religiously, that... Um, to be a Jew is to be a small minority against, uh, against the rest of the world. Some people think that Jews have a persecution complex. Uh, that's a historical statement, since it wasn't just Avraham Avinu. It's been true for 3,000 years. Uh, some people think that it's a good thing. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a statement that Chazal uh, adopted and embraced. It was also expressed by, by Bilam, the Amda Badad Yishkon, talking about Amisel, one nation amid 70. Hazal chose the numbers on purpose, and it's a big number, one nation among 70. But it's even more striking what they say about Abba Mabino, because there it's not really a historical statement, it's, it's, it's a sort in our understanding. That Yiddishkeit was started or existed for a not short period of time by only one person. And if we look at the way the Torah describes it, he remained one person. So Yitzhak was born, and then there was one other person. And then, then Avram died, and, uh, and, Yitzhak, and Yitzhak took his place. So it's true that the Midrashim that say that Avram Avinu was Magaya Geirim, and Nefesh Shasu Bacharan, Avram Magaya Tadirim, and Sarah Magaya Tadirim, and Tanashim. What happened to those people? It's true that Avram Avinu tried. And succeeded partially in spreading uh, his belief, but but afterwards you don't find the Chazal commenting on those people because they disappeared. They, they apparently didn't didn't stick it out. So what with Mapidom, Avraham Avinu went to war with the Arbat Amlachim, so he had at least a couple of hundred, three hundred and eighteen uh, Chanichim, maybe. Although their Chazal say the opposite, there was only one, it was only Eliezer. But if he had two hundred and eighteen Chanichim, what happened to them? Well, where are they? In the end, the Pasuk says, Ki be Yitzchak, Yikarei lechazaran, Osa Eliezer, Lo yirash chazeh. Abba Mavino, as someone who was spreading Yiddishkeit around the world, which is what he apparently thought he should do, was a total failure. He, uh, he was one man, a lonely voice in the desert, you might say. Yitzchak Avinu was one man. Oh, Yaakov Avinu did better. Yaakov Avinu, Ya mitato shleima, he had 12 children, and they all, that, that's the foundation of Jewish people. But then apparently the Yisod that's being expressed in the personality of Amavino does in fact continue because now we say, but I'm Yisod, I'm the Badai Yishkan. And to be in Ivri is also to be, Hume Ever Achad Bekol Olam Kudom Ever Hashem. Usually when you hear this idea expressed, it's sort of like as a consolation. You know, we tell Jews that, you know, don't worry, it's okay to be my rabbi. We've always been a minority. It's important just to be true. So I, I want. I think the reason why it exists in Chazal and exists in the Torah is more than a consolation. It's something which is at the heart of what uh, of what we stand. For. This is what I'd like to. This is what I'd like to explain. The Medrash on Avraham Avinu, the very beginning, uses the following expression. Pasuk says. Um, 
So Avraham Avinu was Nimshach to be, which Kedusha? To be Kedusha Yisrael. He was chosen by God. So there's a long story here which I'm skipping. It explains why God chose him. But the bottom line is, Ma'u mechaveirecha, Shemen sason mechaveirecha. Minorach va'adetz l'cha yud dorot m'kulam lo dibarti im echad mehem ela imcha. That it wasn't just that Avraham Avinu was chosen. He was chosen mechaveirav. Because Baruch Hu is sitting ten generations, which is technically correct, because we know how Avraham Avinu is ten generations, but the number means ten is always the, the completion of, of numbers. Shabbat was sitting and waiting and waiting and counting and examining, and we all know that there was some tzaddikim there, you know, Shem, Eva, these people considered to be good people, tzaddikim. Tabalei Chachamim, they want a yeshiva. Yisak Avinu goes to learn there, Yaakov Avinu goes to learn there. Rabbi Yagud Yeshiva. Mikulam lo dibarti im echad mehem ela imcha. Very extreme expression of the idea that to be what Kaddish Baruch Hu is looking for, which we call Judaism, Abba Mavinu representing Kha Yisrael, is echad mikulam. Shemen sasal mikhabeha. So why is this true? Okay, so Abba Mavinu's time, it's true technically, because the world of the Abba Nassarad, he's not. A little bit after, this, this is a meditation at the beginning of Lechach. A little bit afterwards, there's a meditation that says the following. Uh, the, the four Melachim from the north attacked the five Melachim of Stom, Stom in the area. But it describes the whole war. It's a campaign. They go from place to place. One of the places they come to is a place called Ein Mishpat. Medr says, Avalu, it's like they opened up their atlases. I have no idea what that means exactly. But uh, they don't have an atlas. But Chazal said, Avalu, Akala, Makomot, Ein Makom, Shinikra, Ein Mishpat. There's no such place. So what does it mean, Ein Mishpat? They said, Ein Shehibim Mishpat La'olam. This is the first conspiracy theory in the history of the world. Conspiracy theory is a very popular theory. Right? 37% of the American populace is... Uh, Engaged in a very complicated conspiracy theory. And frankly, another 80% are involved in other conspiracy theories. But the very first conspiracy theory was expressed by, uh, by Chazal concerning Nechemet Abatam Lachemet Achamisha. They said the Abatam Lachem were very successful and perilous. They were, you know, they were conquering the world. But they were worried because Ayin Shehiviyat Hamishpat La'olam. They heard there's a new thing. There's a new uh, theory or a new existence, a new uh, wind blowing. Uh, through the world, it says that yesh din beyesh dayan. It is mishpat, and they thought that was a bad thing because the yesh mishpat that they can do whatever they want. If they had the power, they could do whatever they want, and they were successful. So they figured they had to get rid of it. How do you get the mishpat? Mishpat of Kim, of course. How do you get it to stop? The answer is to get rid of Amavin. Because for Amavin, there really was no mishpat. God had this had, had no place in the world. He, he wasn't in the world. There was no God in the world. Abraham Avinu had brought back the Mishpat Din Vidayan into the world by demanding it, by asking for it, by saying, Eko Bala Bira, Dash in the Pasak, Achot Lanuktana, Vishadayim Ainla, Achot Lanuktana, Zabram Avinu Sheikha, Sheikha means to mend, Sheikha Takera, he brought God back into the world. So the Abraham Lachim figured, we'll go to war. I have no idea why they couldn't just go and attack Abraham Avinu, but we'll go to war. We'll capture stone, we'll take away Lord, the Ramavina will be tempted, will be sucked into fighting against us, and we'll kill him. And if we kill him, then there's no longer a Mishpat. So here Chazal, rather, rather amazingly, because we all know how, how important Avodah Zarev and Avodah Hashem was in the world of Chazal. Avodah Zarev was, was a real option in their time. Obviously, it was a super real option in the time of, 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 of the Tanakh. And, and, and that's what the struggle between Amisel, between Abraham and the rest of the Lord should be about. And for sure that's true, but Davkir, they chose something else. They weren't fighting about whether you should worship this idol or worship what we call God. They were talking about something else entirely. They were talking about whether or not there's tzedek and mishpat in the world. Or whether the world is basically hefke, or the world is whoever succeeds, succeeds. But there's no demand and there's no need to give a din b'cheshvan about what you do, and if you succeed, you succeed. And these people thought that they would succeed. They could get rid of Abraham Avinu, this one man who would change the world, so we could get the world back to the way they wanted. 
Rather surprisingly, Chazal said that this is a Yitzhahara that affected Amisar. They claim, Bimei Uziyah, Dashing Pasha, in Sefer Malachim, Bikshul in Hogba, Bamidazah, the Jews said to God, they said, You know what? Working with you, it's just not working out. We, we tend to trip up so much. Let's try the other shita. You take a vacation, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to make our way in the world. The fee, what? The fee ateva, the fee, the fee the normal way. God got very angry, told me you can't do this. Meaning there's a real Yetzirah, people really find it. Sounds, it sounds wonderful. Uh, isn't it wonderful to have a mishpana, to have a shofet? means the tzedek, but the truth is, people hate it. Because you always have to give an accounting. And therefore, but some people, many people, uh, including one point they say the Jewish people, would rather uh, live in a world that has order, but a different kind of an order. Not the order of Tzedekul Mishpat, but the order of uh, whatever, the rules, uh, the scientific rules, the rules of nature, strength, survival of the fittest, you can call it anything, you can call it anything you want. So, this, it's, it's another example, though we shouldn't only understand that Abraham Rabinu Mitzalachai, he was the only person to worship monotheism. Dr. Chazal saw the life of Amavino as being, to a great extent, I wouldn't say 100%, to a great extent, working on a different, on a different conflict, and a different uh, axis. One person against the whole world, because it said the Mishpat. You all remember the Bahat, the passage before the, the debate over stone. Amavino goes to debate God over stone. And God then says, why Amavino is special? You don't need a measure. This is a passage. Abraham. I, I'm going to tell him I'm going to go do the stone. Why, why am I going to tell him? It was a bad idea from God. God knew that by telling Abba Mavinu what he's going to do in stone, he's going to get, he's going to get uh, an earful from Abba Mavinu. He's going to have to play along with it for a long time before he gets to the shore of stone like he's going to do anyhow. So who needs this? So Abba Mavinu, so God, so God explains, The that was made, what made Abraham Avinu special. It made him a Yidid Hashem, that God had to consult with him about the destruction of stone, because he, he stood for Tzedek Mishpat. He didn't say, Ki Yedatev Hashem Tzavet Barabach Harab Lavodot Hashem, which is what we expected. That, that they, will, they will build a Beit HaMikdash Lishmi, as opposed to as opposed to everybody else. No, he said, don't do Tzedek Mishpat. I'm not going to talk about Tzedek Mishpat. That's just an example. What I want to say is that this idea that to be a Bamavino is to be one person against the whole world is is by yourself. It's like it should be it should be in your bones. It should be it's 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 part of the fiber of a beating Jewish heart. But why is it important to stress that? Because most of the time we don't live in the world. We live in a little kila. Uh, in your cases, and in my case, <laughs> for longer. We live in a teeny little kila in which there are only, whatever, eight or nine buses a day. We live in the Shiva for a year, or two years, or 44 years. And it's not me against the world. Everybody agrees with me here. Okay, it's not 100% true. I mean, obviously, you know, everybody disagrees with me here. I'm the only person who really knows the, the whole MS. But, but basically, uh, that's a famous result that's quoted all the time by intellectuals. It's called in America, it's called the Quaker and his wife. Familiar? You should be familiar. It's not a Jewish story. The Quaker says to his wife, the whole world is crazy except for me and D, and sometimes I wonder about D. It's a Quaker just so they can say D at the end. But anyone who's really intelligent has to wonder whether or not anybody else understands it. Which is true. So one time, Abba Vino, being the Jewish people, were one, and the rest of the world was against them. The last couple of hundred years, it's a little more complicated. The Jews are a minority in the world. From Jews are a minority of the Jews. Uh, our kind of firm Jews, a minority of firm Jews today, wasn't true when I was a child, but it's true today. And among firm Jews like us, meaning what's called the Tzionim, Modernim, Datiyim, so Gushnikim are a minority among them. And now I can say what I just said now, among the Gushnikim, it's true, I'm a minority in most of the Gushnikim. To be a minority is in your both, but we don't always feel it. The truth is, you know, most of the time we, uh, we have certain accepted norms and, and we flow with them. It's important to realize why today, as well as 3,000 years ago, that's 100% not true. To be a Jew, to be an Ovid Hashem, to be Nosei HaOl Shalabam Avinu, means to be Hume Eber Achad Vehim Eber Hashem. Now I'd like to explain 
why that's true, and give you a short course in, uh, in elementary sociology. Peter Berger is a famous uh, 20th century sociologist. Amazingly enough, he wasn't Jewish, even though his name was Berger. That surprised him when I discovered it. I was sure he was Jewish. Uh, but then, to that he's a Lutheran. Uh, apparently, you can be a guy for the name Berger. It happens. Uh, Peter Berger was a sociologist. He originally was non-religious. He was, he was one of the founders, one of the founders, of a whole sociological uh, argument that said the 20th century in the Western world, they knew not to say the whole world, but in the Western world, is the end of religion. I'll explain what he meant by that in a second. And later on, he was close to Petruva, not just personally, he started going to church, but also he realized that they had exaggerated the, the death. The death was premature. The rumors of my death are, uh, are, pre, are premature, as Mark Twain once said. Uh, and that it turns out that it's not as dead as we thought. He was the single founder. Sociology of religion was one of the areas that he was involved in, but he was singly the founder of something called the sociology of knowledge, which he invented. The sociology of knowledge meant that in the Middle Ages, according to the Rambam, according to Aristotle, according to every thinker uh, throughout the ages, knowledge is intellect. You know, we, we don't do it together. I sit here and I think and I discover the truth. Sometimes we make a mistake, sometimes we can argue, but, but the process of knowing something, it means using, using your brain, and your brain is, is just you. Peter Berger said that in knowledge as well as other things, there's a sociology, just like what foods do we like. That's not really based on, on, on purely on human appetite. You know, in certain cultures, they like frogs. We don't like frogs. Why? It's sociological. Maybe sociologically Jewish halacha, maybe sociological Western. Goyim in, 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 Goyim in, in Brooklyn don't eat frogs either. It's not tasty, it tastes terrible. Uh, but it's very delicious in France. Taste is sociological. Uh, your taste in music is sociological. It's not, it's not a matter of truth, purely intellect. Berger pointed out that knowledge is also sociological. What does that mean? In any society, you ask a question, you're looking for an explanation, Certain answers are possible, certain answers are not possible. If we're sitting, it doesn't happen here because we live in a modern building, let's say we're sitting in a, in a lecture hall in, uh, in, in Oxford, it's 500 years old. So of course every few minutes you hear like this noise, it sounds like a groan. And, and someone raises his hand and says, what is that? Someone says, it's one of the ghosts. It's not a possible answer. Why? Can't be. Has anyone ever disproved the existence of ghosts? You can't disprove the existence of ghosts. It's not possible. By definition, ghosts are the kind of beings that you can't disprove. That's what makes them ghosts. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a rational answer in, in Cambridge. It's a perfectly rational answer in Indonesia, but not in Cambridge. What's the right answer? the old timbers creak when the wind blows. That's a possible answer. Um, if all of a sudden, one night we're walking, in the, walking outside and we see a bright streak that goes in the, in the night sky, someplace near the moon. What could that possibly be? List all the possibilities. You don't know anything. You're not astronomer. All the possibilities. It might be a satellite. It might be a falling star, which we don't call falling stars anymore. It might be a uh, meteor. It might be a uh, it might be a missile from Maza. It might be the balloon of the neighbor, but you're making a mistake in the distance. Therefore, you think it's just the right thing. Or it might be that on the other side of the moon, the other side of the moon no longer exists. When I was a child, you couldn't. No one had ever been to the other side of the moon because the moon always has the same face facing us. So whenever you wanted to say something that you can't prove or disprove, you say it's because of the little green people on the other side of the moon and they're shooting fireworks. And there's no way to disprove that because there was no way to see the other side of the moon. You can only see one side of the moon. But that's not listed as one of the possibilities by you. There's a certain legal number of possibilities and a certain illegal. What's that based on? So Berger said that's sociology. Society, for whatever reasons, has accepted a number of possibilities, and other possibilities don't count anymore. He was interested in religion. So he said that this, there's certain societies today, not Western societies, where 
if, if something happens, the answer could be, could be, doesn't have to be, it might be spirits, it might be angels, it might be gods, it might be God. There's a whole bunch of possible things to explain noises in the night in a small village in Africa. But in America, or the Western world in general, if you hear a noise outside, including you people who are, technically speaking, religious people, none of you would suggest that that was what the shade roaming around in the garden. <laughs> Why not? What, what, let's have a vote. How many of you believe in shade? No, that's not a good question. How many, how many of you don't believe in shade? Well, a lot of people aren't sure. That's interesting. There's nothing wrong. None of you really believe in shade. Those who say they do, they're just saying. You don't actually believe in shade. Meaning that if you went outside and you heard a noise behind you, you would take out your nunchucks, you wouldn't take out your anti-shade amendment. Because <laughs> the noise behind you is the mother, and not, it's, it's not one of the possibilities. If I wanted to really provoke your pumkite, since after all, shade, you believe in shade, it's not, it's not an aspect of pumkite. If I wanted to really provoke your pumkite, I would ask how many of you, but genuinely, not theoretically, genuinely believe in angels. So I don't think that you do. I mean, you do. You say Shemalech with Kavana, but... <laughs> it's not part of your life. You, you don't expect to meet one any time in the next 50 years. You do. Okay, so there's one person here who does. But, but most of us don't. As other do whether you're feminine. From people no longer genuinely, well, they believe that they pulled up on a bean, or they believe that they're there, maybe the Bashamayim, but they're not part of our. They're not, we don't explain things by reference to them. That's what Peter Berger meant that in the modern Western world, there are no more angels. And what he's claiming, and his friends were claiming, is that there's no longer God either. The sociology of knowledge says that people who are fed up, what's the importance of that? That's an interesting theory. What he's saying is, if you live in that society, you're all affected by it. Anyone who was brought up in a modern Western society has, has, does not believe in spirits in the night. Because there's a sociology of knowledge. It's the same reason that if you were brought up in New York, you don't like fried uh, kosher locust. Not that it's also, it's murder. But if I tried, so a few years ago there was a, uh, there was a Makata bed in Israel. Africa didn't have that. I was expecting a mission, but it didn't happen. Africa's being inundated by, uh, by locusts. But there was a, the, the winds blew in the right direction, they landed in the negative. So there were still old Taimanim who remember the locusts in Yemen. They also can identify them. It's a problem. Allah, you have to have a Masada. But they have a Masada. So they went out and they collected them and they fried them. Apparently, you fried them in butter, they're mushroom, mushroom. And they're really delicious. But it didn't catch on in Ashkenazi community. Why not? Locusts aren't food for us, they're not on the list of possible food. And in the Western society, certain things are no longer on the list, certain things are on the list. The thing that's not on the list that I want to talk about is, and the point is, not that something is being taught as being true. It's subliminal. It's things that aren't even possible anymore. The founding yourself of the intellectual modern Western society is naturalism. That explanations for all things are found in all things. The explanation of nature is in nature. It's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the guiding light of science, obviously. That's how science works. You look for what scientific causes cause scientific effects. And scientific effects and causes are natural, meaning they're part of the natural world. But that scientific explanation has been exported in the last 200 years, approximately, to everything. In other words, the explanation for anything has to derive from natural objects. Now, that's not something which is necessary. There's no course, I think, in most universities where that will be affirmed. It doesn't need to be affirmed. It's the sociology of knowledge. It's not debated, because it doesn't need to be debated. It's what, it's what intellectual life is based on. <coughs> now, that doesn't, what, what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that there are no angels. That's not important. We can live without angels. It means there are no things that are natural things. So it's, doesn't, it's, it's not even about Yiddishkeit. It's not even about, it's not even about God. It's the seven. It's also about ethics. Any ethics course 
taught in any university today in the Western world has a number of explanations for what ethics means. Not one of them is that it's a fact that certain things are good and certain things are bad. It's a metaphysical value. Because values are not natural objects. A natural object is something which if you hit it hard enough, it breaks, and if it, 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 it it's you hard enough, you break. In other words, there's, an, there's a cause and effect relationship between them. Atoms smashing into atoms. But values cannot be affected by the world. If something is, is right, it's, it's right to be generous. It's not going to make a difference if the room is yellow, or the room is green, or the room is big, or the room is cold. It, it's, it's unaffected by that. It's not a natural object. In all, I, I took a professional ethics course in the University of Columbia 50 years ago. That wasn't one of the options. I, that's not really fair because the teacher had a very broad perspective. He mentioned that in the 14th century that was one of the options. He did mention that. And then he proceeded to teach what ethics means today. So there's a theory of utilitarianism, there's a theory of, uh, of, uh, of social evolution, and there's a theory of, uh, it goes on forever, theories of just expression of taste, which is the most popular theory today in intellectual philosophical circles. If you say something is good, you mean I like it, and that's all you mean. Steak is good, in my personal opinion. I don't mean that ethically, I mean I, mean I like it. Murder is bad. The, the most dominant theory in the Anglo-Saxon world of philosophy for what it means to say that murder is bad is that it doesn't, it's, uh, we don't like it. Which means that you can disagree because there is no real disagreement about matters of faith. That's just an example. It depends what department you're in. In departments not of philosophy, but departments of uh, sociology or anthropology, the dominant theory of ethics is that one million years ago there were homo sapiens and saber-toothed tigers. Very difficult uh, problem. Saber-toothed tigers have very large teeth, which is why they're called saber-toothed tigers. One man against a saber-toothed tiger is a meal. Five men against a saber-toothed tiger is a feast. So therefore, you all understand how evolutionary theory works. Those people who by some quirk in their mind, natural arrangement of the atoms in their mind, tended to be loners, you know, the kind of guys who don't get a kavusa, the kind of guys who, uh, who, who wander off into the farsa night, they don't survive long enough to reproduce. Because when one of those long walks in the night where they didn't feel comfortable uh, hanging out with the chevra, they were eaten by a cyber two <laughs> There were other people who, like, by quirks in their brain, they liked hanging out with other people. They didn't get eaten. They appeared, they all got together, and they killed them, and they had a feast. And therefore they reproduce. And that's why today all people have a natural, natural tendency towards generosity, shitufula, friendship, etc. Those are considered to be values. But they're not really values. What are they? They're just genes that happen to survive because of the same reason that the gene for color blindness or the gene for, well, once you have, once you have traffic lights, we can assume that the gene for color blindness will not, uh, will not last much longer. <laughs> uh, it takes a million years for these systems to work out. <laughs> that's the prediction. The prediction is that one million years from today, there will no longer be any color blindness. We'll have eliminated color blindness. In a rather cool manner, but we'll have eliminated color blindness. At that point, you know, we've eliminated Tay-Saxons by using the same method. Uh, if you don't reproduce, you won't have to be walk, you won't pass it on. Uh, that's considered to be one of the great uh, successes of, uh, of Judaism, of modern, modern Orthodox Judaism. They've eliminated more or less, eliminated Tay-Saxons by preventing people who have the gene from marrying each other. Um, so there are all kinds of different possible explanations, but none of them are that values are values. <coughs> What I want to say is that we don't care about the numbers, and we don't care about sociology. If Avama Bino had learned about the sociology of knowledge, he would never become Avama Bino. He grew up, Chazal really emphasized that, he grew up in a world where there was no alternative to Avarazara. No one even questioned it. And why would you question it? It's very cute to be the Medish. Avama Bino does, you know, plays the games with the food and wants to know, like, why... You know, and he tells his father that the big one hit the broke the little one because he wanted more food. It's a great, it's a great time up. But you would never ask. How come no one else asked that question then, and no one asked that question now in all of India? Because 
It's a silly question, you know, you don't understand. That's not the way it works, but come out. You just don't think about it. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a real alternative. Sociology of knowledge is the most powerful thing that we discovered in the 20th century. You can only think about those things that it's important for you to think about. And, and if somebody raises his hand and says, there's a ghost in the room, to explain why, I just heard a funny noise come from over there, you will all laugh. Why will you laugh? Why, why do you think there are no ghosts? Not because your firm told you to say there are no ghosts. Because others said, no, don't say there are no ghosts. Your grandfathers didn't tell you there's no ghosts. Why do you think there are no ghosts? Because you were brought up in a world where there really aren't any ghosts anymore. They've been destroyed. Who killed all the ghosts? Sorry. Society killed all the ghosts. Just not, they're just not there anymore. Why? Because we think naturally. All of us think naturally. Naturally means things that can't be detected in some ways by, by machines. Those are things which don't work on cause and effect. If you can't spread a powder and find the footsteps of the ghosts, then they don't exist. There has to be some way in which they interact with the world, and if they interact in a manner that's scientific, meaning every time you push the button, they'll light up. If, not, if they don't appear in the regular light, then they appear in ultraviolet light. If they don't appear in ultraviolet light, they appear in infrared light. If they don't appear in red light, then they appear in X-rays. But if they don't appear in any light, then they're not there. Why is that? Because the, the scientific method has been exported to everything. Everything has to be explained by some form of natural uh, of, of natural explanation. It's interesting because there's a process involved. There are many, many people who believe in God who in their professional work are totally naturalists. Human beings manage to have a certain bifurcation in their brain. In the morning you can go to shul or church. In the afternoon you can basically teach that there are no values. Now, there's a contradiction involved in that. It takes a while for people to be aware of their own self-contradiction. It takes a while for society. It takes a couple hundred years in cases. From year to year it gets worse because there really is a steer here. Therefore, it's true, I was born in a certain way and you begin to compartmentalize it and to make it smaller and smaller and smaller because basically your brain is working in a manner that doesn't allow for non-natural explanations. The 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 kid <coughs> of Avraham Avinu, the kid of a Jew, is to ignore sociology and to stand up for the existence of values. Now values can be the existence of God. Values can be Tzedek Mishpat, which what Abraham Avinu really fought his war on. He didn't run around. After, after, breaking, after breaking his father's statues, which he doesn't do in the Torah, but some place before the Torah, we don't have any stories of Abraham Avinu breaking statues. We have him teaching Gemilus Chasadim, we have him teaching Tzedek, Chesed, Mishpat. That, that's what he waged his war about. Why he chose that instead of breaking idols? I don't know. Maybe he figured that it wouldn't work. He thought he had no chance. He had no chance in the second either, but he thought he, made, he finally thought he had a better chance. Um, there's an interesting medrash that explains the opposite. Uh, Avraham Avinu almost succeeded, according to the medrash. Uh, in the same war, the Batan Lachim Negeda Hamisha, so when it was over, the uh, Melech Stone has uh, come out of his hiding it says that they're in Emek Shaveh. So, Chazal said the same thing. Where's this place called Emek Shaveh? We know it's, it's no such, there's no such geography. I typed it into Google. Emek Shaveh, there's no such place. So, Chazal said it's called Emek Shaveh, Shesham Hishtavu Kol HaUmot. Vilatchu Ota Ram Avinu, Vimlichu Ota Olehem. Avinu just saved Canaan. Oh, Kol HaUmot means all the people of Canaan. But he just saved them. He was a great hero. You know what happens when you have a great hero. They, they appoint you to be their leader. It's a natural human tendency after wars. As Nishtavu Koloma, apparently it's understandable. Canaan is a country that's different than Egypt. Right? Egypt is a king, Canaan is a hundred kings. Like it's a very uh, contentious country, apparently. A lot of small rivalries. But now, after this great act of Ramavinu, who had defeated the Abad Hamlachim, Nishtavu Koloma, Toshibu Dabraham Avinu, Allah Piriyam, Viyamru Lo, it doesn't work out exactly. They have a quarter puzzle that took place many, many decades later. Beginning of Chayyim Sarah, Amulo, Adon Ata Aleinu, Melech Ata Aleinu, Nesi Ata Aleinu, Adon Ata Aleinu, Elohim Ata Aleinu, and that's the end of the marriage. So I will explain what way I understand the marriage, because the marriage didn't bother telling us the last line. What happens is, Avraham Avinu spent his life trying to convince all these people to be Obed Hashem. He was the guy that gave him his Chalan. There's another measure that says that a few minutes earlier, the measure I'm telling now, uh, Melech Storm said to him, Take me a nefesh, the Hush Kachlach, 
Rabbi Amir says, "Misroch miyichut yatsroch now. I'm not going to take any rechush from you. It doesn't make you nefesh." So the Rebbe says, "Yeah, yeah, same thing." Melach Sloan said, "You can take the money. I want the I want the I want the nefesh." Rabbi Amir said, "No, no, you get the money, and I get the nefesh." Rabbi Amir is bigger. Okay, I'm going to keep the kids. We'll give back the adults because they're hopeless. But after having apparently a lot of disappointment in his conversion uh, efforts and his missionary efforts, he said, "I'll keep the little kids." Because those you can really, those, those you can really influence. But I mean, it's still working on converting all the world and bringing them all to the light. Okay, a few minutes later, a few days later, you have this tekkes where they really come to him and they take the pasuk. Which is obviously said not much later by 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 And they say they said to him, they, they built an apuyon, they built a stage, they put a chair. Put our body on the chair, and they said, "You will be our Adam." Okay, what's an Adam? That is a king. You will be our leader. This is what I've been working for all my life. Then they say, "Nasiyata." What's between an Adam and a Nasiyah? I'm guessing. But an Adam is a king, and the sea is more of a, a leader. I think they were saying to me, "You're going to be our guru. You're going to be our religious leader." Avinu is like mom is bursting with happiness. And then, they say to him, Elohim ata alein. It's the next step. You've saved us, you're our king, you're our leader, and you're our God. The Medrash ends, why? Abba goes, and he goes on. And you don't have any more stories in the Medrash, and no more stories in the Torah that involve other people than Abba Within a few psukim, and the Medrash immediately, but within the Torah, a few psukim, we're going, to have, we're going to have the promise of Bit Milah. So it's Bit Milah separates you from them, and then Yitzchak, and that's the end of the story. Uh, so Dafka, on a religious basis, Avam Avino hasn't managed to break the mold that great people are gods, which Avam Avino is not just wrong, it's like, it's like ridiculous. It's missing the point of what it means to be God. But, but he, he lives in a society which doesn't even get the idea that there can be only one God and all people are different. And he doesn't get the idea anymore. He, he's developed on his own idea. That's exactly, exactly the opposite. To be a Avinu, to be a Jew, is to be me'eva echa v'kolam kolam me'eva echa. We don't care about the numbers. I mean, why, why do, who cares about the numbers? You're not, you're not that big a Democrat. You're not going to change your mind if people vote against you. But well, that's they told you in first grade. It's my, I'm trying to tell you that it's much more insidious. It's not that I'm warning you not to not to go with the vote. Who would go with the vote? We know that most people vote wrong in elections. Uh, that, that's obvious. That's what democracy is all about. Uh, it's not a matter of lowest lino but the It's to understand that it's lowest lino but the kula. That call the olam kulomi There are certain things which no matter what are going to become true. They were true 200 years ago. I don't know if they'll be true 200 years from now, but they're true now. And it's not for any particular... I'm sure they're starting to explain, you know, why from the Middle Ages to the modern era you had this change of secularism and religiosity. The whole book's written about it. It's not important. It wasn't because of some intellectual proof. It's a sociological distinction. Things are taking place. There were revolts of the masses. The church was uh, fell apart. There are all sorts of explanations to why the, the religious order has died, doesn't make a difference which religion you belong to, and the secular meaning, what today the secular means now is naturalism, has taken over. I mean, the only values are the values that we give things. There aren't any real values. But that's what you should understand. That the world we live in, outside of these borders, outside of these David Amos, of Yeshivat HaRetzion, and Allah Shavuot, maybe Yisrael, outside of these little borders, there are no values. Meaning there are no things which are true because they're true and not because they are instrumental in supporting a building and putting atoms together and making things work. And that's a shocking thing to say. Now I know we true there's all of us belong to two worlds. We we know there are values. I'm saying your minds are bifurcated. Half the day you don't believe in values, and half the day you do. But there's a contradiction between the two. The general I, I, I emphasize intellectual Western world. It's not that most people in the Western world don't believe in values. But the intellectual Western world does not officially believe in values. It can't. It's not a possibility. Values meaning things which are above the world. Supernatural, literally speaking, but I don't mean ghosts in the dark, but supernatural meaning they're not connected to atoms and molecules and, and, and the way physics operates. Everything is physics today. 
biology is physics. Psychology used to be about souls. Today it's about chemistry, which is about physics. And, and it just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a continual process, which takes time, but it's gradually conquering and will conquer every single, every single field. It's taken over psychology, it's taken over sociology, it's taken over anthropology, it's taken over ethics, which is really a basic thing, because ethics is a study of values. But, it's, but basically, the, the, the intellectual Western world denies that ethics is a study of values, denies that values are a study of values. Values are a study where people impute the things in order to make their lives pleasant. So we call something a value, meaning it tastes good. We call something a value, meaning, meaning, meaning it makes me rich. We call something a value, meaning it keeps the, keeps the horse from stealing my money. That's why we shouldn't steal, that's why we need police. But it's not, there's no real difference in terms of this is good and this is bad between stealing and, 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 and not stealing. Very few people will say that to you. But that's the theory that goes beyond the way you're taught to think about any question that arises. So what I'm saying is that in order to be, in order to be from, in order to be Jewish, it's not enough to go to show. In order to be from, it is enough to go to show. In order to be Jewish, it's not enough to go to show. Because to be Jewish is to be it's first of all defense. I'm, I'm praying that you won't be swept up in the sociology of the rhythm to society. That one of them is trying to is trying to destroy your belief in values. But two, it also is true that we should be like a We have to testify. Once we're once we're in that world, we're there to to fight. We're there to declare something which actually they know is true because everybody believes in values until they start thinking. So they start using their head to explain the values, and they have to use like these acceptable explanations. Atemi dai, our job is to stand up for values, which could mean the Kodesh Bavel, could mean Sachav Bavel, could mean ethics, could mean doing right and not doing wrong, could be the value of life, could be the value of anything. But all those things are things which don't exist in the in, in the modern Western world anymore. By definition, they don't exist not because they've been disproven, but because because they're ghosts, because they're they're they're, they're, they're voices in the darkness. But not things you can see in the light, the light which shines shines on Anything that cannot be seen in the light cannot can no longer be accepted as as rational. Meaning it doesn't be rational. Rational people don't talk to them. We have to continue to talk to them. That's our job. Ourselves. To to to, to justify our belief in values. To say yes, we really believe that it's important to be good. We really believe it's important to be right. We really believe it's important to be Hashem and not and not just floating in the wind. The winds which wherever society pushes us. Uh, there are many articles. I don't know how to take it back. There are articles <laughs> which I'm familiar with. Because some of them are written by people I know. From Jews, which actually said black on white, Tibet. The Torah teaches this. But we know that in modern society, that's wrong. And I was amazed to see those words, because I thought they would say, we know, the teacher told us that it's wrong, but, but in my moral outlook, I think it's right. But I'm actually familiar with articles of people I know who wrote. The Torah says that it's wrong, but we who are modern people, we, we understand that it's right. He didn't say that he thought and, 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 and tried to use moral reasoning. He simply said, I live in this world, everybody knows, I can take the example that I was talking about, it's a long, very long article written by Bogei Shibata about homosexuality, and he says, we know that it's okay. So therefore, we have a problem, therefore the Torah is wrong. I couldn't believe that somebody could write that, because basically what he's saying is, by sociology, he didn't, he didn't argue on moral basis. If he'd done that, there'd be a problem. He literally argued, this man is a professor in a university in America, I've now stopped in my... My my have to give identification marks. That's as far as they're going to get for me. He literally said that sociologically homosexuality cannot possibly be bad, and therefore the Torah can't be right. That's the most classic and bold example that I know of sociology of knowledge, but admitted to it. I was surprised anybody would admit to it. Um, but that it's true. It's of course true. It's true for us as well. We also argue things without thinking about that. Because everybody says, so therefore, we're going we're gonna to say it is wrong. So the job of a Jew, this is what Abba Mabina tells us, the, bar, the job of a Jew is to be a conscientious objector. Is not to accept anything just because everybody else says it. And the reason why they say this is because they thought it out. Sometimes you should do it. If you, know, if you, if you want to know how to get them here to Yushalayim, I, I would suggest, very, and you don't know how to go. You don't know how to take this road or that road. 
and your ways is broken. So I would suggest you ask around and follow the rule. It's not about the rule is a wonderful principle. But you have to assume that there's a reason why they give you the answer, so let's check it out. But many, many things, the most important things, the things that are the basis for how we think, nobody's checked out. There's, no, there's also no way of checking it out. There's simply certain cultural modes of thinking, which are dependent on sociological and psychological and cultural uh, uh, developments of the last two, three, four hundred years. Obviously in America, everybody thinks democracy is good. Obviously in Hungary, nobody thinks, uh, uh, or in Russia, a better example, in Russia, nobody thinks democracy is good. Why? Because they've never, ever been there. And Americans have gotten too used to being there, and therefore they don't question it at all. And the truth is probably someplace in between. This is a, this is a famous thesis that Russians are incapable of being dem democratic, because they've always been ruled by tyrants since, since the 13th century, uh, 14th century. And so they just, they just don't understand the words. You can explain it to them on paper, but they don't understand the words. And, and Americans don't understand other words because they've been tasting freedom for too long. Uh, and that's true for all societies. It's true for Jewish society. Okay, so I, I'm not telling you what's right. You have to know what's right. But I'm telling you what you have to do. You are conscientious objectors. And the fact that you're one out of ten is meant to be irrelevant. It's more than meant to be irrelevant. Because Shmohu created the history of Judaism to tell us that one out of ten is good. One out of a hundred is good. It's what makes Avraham Avinu special. That he's one out of a million. One out of ten million. The Rabbans gave this whole share about Zionism. That, uh, before my time, it's a very famous share. It's in, uh, uh, the book that was originally called uh, Fear Drushes, which in Yiddish means Oil Drushes, but had five. They translated into Hebrew, so they called it Hamesh Mashor. But then they added ones, and actually there were six. And he explains it that Yosef and his brothers was a classic example of Noah's leaving Bataruba. That all the brothers had one theory, Yosef had another theory, and it turned out Yosef was right. Uh, he identified with Yosef because his name was Yosef. We, we glory in the fact that it's one out of a million. You have to, but you have to be aware of what you have to do. It's not to say, oh, you say A, I can say B. We are very saying A. A is in our bones because of the sociology of knowledge. We have to first of all say to ourselves, the fact that I always think this way, I think I think this way, I appear to be thinking this way, I, I, I believe in what I believe in. I believe in values. I believe in, in, in non-natural objects. One of them is God. I believe in Torah. I believe in, in rationality. Rationality is under attack today. All sorts of things are under attack today. You know, rationality today in certain, this is a very a higher level of American intellectual circles, but rationality is a Western construct of oppression by white men. There's, there's, like, there's endless social constructs to explain why nothing has a, has, has a value. Uh, whoever asked me to please mention the word postmodern, it's incorrect, it's not what postmodernity is, but it's, it's close enough. One of, one of the aspects of postmodernity, which by the way no longer exists, postmodernity died 20 years ago, we are post-postmodern. But one of the things postmodernity was that this is true and that's also true. Nothing is true in and of itself. That was one of these sadduk that was sometimes expressed by some of the people who were later called postmodern. So, okay, so I threw the word, I was the only other promise I made to him. <laughs> um, but you see that it's a, it's a major, it's a major discussion today, literally today, in American universities. Is anything that was thought twenty years ago to be true? Is it merely a cultural truth because that's what middle class people think, or white people think, or Europeans think? Uh, but it ignores the basic truth that who says who says intellectualism is good? Maybe ignorance is good. Uh, who says clarity of thought is good? Maybe, maybe schizophrenia is good. Timothy Leary died one year ago. He was the, he was the prophet of schizophrenia. That was a good thing. He was, uh, he was a Harvard psychiatrist. And nothing is sacred. What do you mean by sacred? Nothing, is, nothing cannot be denied. Because the only thing which cannot be denied, the only thing which, which we know is true, is those things that work. If you, if, you plug in, if you plug in the electricity, the light goes on. Okay, that would be more or less acceptable. But when you talk about values, it doesn't work that way. So you can say the opposite, that we shouldn't say anything at all. Our job is to attempt a guide. We have to be called Koreba Mikbar. Echad haya Abraham, vayirash et ha'anas. I can quote the rest of the Pasuk, why not? We should be honest about Pasuk. Because I'll use it in general, but the Pasuk itself is somewhat more explicit. But the people were saying, Yechezke was talking about the people living in Eretzor in this time. It's after the Chuban. There's still Jews living in Eretzor. They're living in, they're living in Chuban. They live in Chuvot, not just Chuvot, they live in Chuvot. 
פסק, אגו והקטוב סוגר, זה בסדר קנטקסט. ראית מה שווה לי, בן אדם יושבי החרבות האלה. People are living in, in slums, living in broken down, destroyed houses, that remnant that we made in Eretz Israel after the Chubban Abayim. על אדמת ישראל אומרים לאמור, אחד היה אברהם ביהודית הארץ, ואנחנו רבים, לנו נקנה הארץ למורשה. What are they saying? Abraham was one person and he got Eretz Israel. We're more than one person, we're many people, and Eretz Israel belongs to us. So we, we're going to stick it out. Sounds good. Oh, we're going to stick it out. We're going to win in the end. We're not, we're not going to listen to you crazy Nevi'im who are telling us all sorts of things about how there's going to be a Chorba. Because Abba Mavino won, so we're going to win also. Lanu mitna aretz lemor hasha. What were they saying? Why were they saying that? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The, 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 the Bavlim are more, are more numerous than you. Why, 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 why do you think that your numbers count them? What they're basically saying is, we've always lived here. We know El Sol is ours. We're sticking with what we got. You don't question the situation that exists. It looks bad. It looks bad. There's a Chorban, but Lanu mitna aretz lemor hasha. Cheska used the word Morasha because it's found in the Torah, he didn't make it up. The Shem promised it. Morasha kilat Yaakov. V'chein amor alehem koramar Adonai Elohim, al adam tochelu v'inechem tisu, adiluchem v'dam tishpachu v'aretz tirashu? Question mark. Amatem achau v'chem, asitem tovei vav, ishet eshet ra'eu timetem, v'aretz tirashu? What is God saying to them? You think living in the land is based on how much you dig? It's based on this? physical cause, that natural cause, whether or not you have a connection to it, a historical connection, you've always been there, you're planning to be, to be very resolute, you're planning to hold up really tight. It's telling us something else. What's it telling us? Anchetan, anchetan, and mitzvah. But what is he saying? There were people who cannot get out of their framework that we live here. This is our land. We're not going to move. It's irrational. But it's very rational if that's, if that's what everybody thinks. And God is giving another thought, which is, it doesn't make any sense. The people who are peasants living on the land. He says, living on the land is totally on whether or not you can stock it. That doesn't make any sense. That's a, that's a value. It's the same that's based on God, based on Shabbat, and based on ethics. That ethics has more effect in the end on our life than, than electricity. They don't understand it. So God is the other of them. He's saying, I promise you, you're all going to be destroyed in the lead. That's where the Pasuk says, Echad hayad ram They think that, that you can do what you can do, call the Chomer, that if God, Abraham is one, so we're men. The answer is, because Abraham was Echad, because he wasn't the Kalvachomer of men. He didn't, he didn't enter the equation of men. He was Echad because he was Echad. Because I waited ten generations to find out And if you're not like a Ramavino, then God promise you, you're not going to be an Epsilon and Christ everything else as well. Okay, that's the, that's the mess of values in a, in a valueless world that I'm explaining is, it's not because I hate the world. Sometimes you see people say, oh, everything is terrible, it's a valueless world. The world is full of values. People are, most, most people are honest. Most people are ethical. But most people don't believe in ethics anymore. They're ethical out of habit. They're ethical because it's kind of, because it feels good. They're ethical because they'd like to be ethical. But the intellectual world in which we are placed as Westerners does not have any values whatsoever. They exist, but they're, but they're without basis. Now what I'm saying is that we, the Jews, are good Jews. You're Jews. You are the flag bearers of a value, but you can only do it if you know it's a valueless world. You're not going out into an appreciative audience. You're not going out to necessarily convince anybody. Probably you didn't convince anybody. You're going out to simply keep the flag, keep, keep the flag raised. In order that there should be Shekhinah Ba'olam, in order there should be Tzedek Ba'olam, if they had killed Abraham Rabinu, there would only be a Mishpat. The reason why there is Mishpat in the world, the reason why there is God in the world, is because there's still people who are maintaining connection to to values, to the Mishpat Hashem, to Kedushim. And they're maintaining it in a very inimical, very, very, they're maintaining it in the desert. They're maintaining the water hole in the desert. And that's what, that's what, that's what Jews have to be if we're going to live in the, in, in the Western world. And that's what Jews have to be because they have to be. And in the end, 
ההבטחה is, this is הבטחת השם, that in the end of days, at some point, I'll clean the cover, the rot, the hair, the pair, the buzzer, the big bullet, the arrows, the ring, the rot, the caritu, the king, the kutsha kai. This is what inspires us every day. When we, when we, when we may inshul, you understand why we say this? Why, why do we say later before we leave shul? Not because the Gemara says so, because the Gemara doesn't say so. Not because the Gaonim, we want the Sidon, say so. Because the Gaonim, we want the Sidon, didn't know you should say Elaine every day. At some point in Jewish history, we don't know exactly when, between the 10th and 12th century, Jews all over the world decided to say Elaine every day before they left Shul. And what they're saying is, when you're in Shul, there's no problem. When you're in Shul, you're living in Kedusha. But as soon as you leave Shul, you're living in a world which is a valueless world. This is in the 10th century. It's a different reason, but it's true in different reasons. Living in a world of Barazara. But we take from the, we have to, we walk out, we have to carry a flag. Okay, the Kaveh, the Lord, the Hira, the Kitzeret, the Zech, the Abir, the Zim, and the Aretz, the Yim, the Kaveh, the Kaveh, the Takeh, Olam, the Machut, Shakai. My very existence, my heter to be out in the world is because I'm breathing the hope that the Takeh, Olam, the Machut, Shakai, the Kaveh, the Sayyiku, the Shemach, the Bayam, the Huyah, the Shemachat, the Shemach. That's today's shmooze. Too long. Oh, you have to answer questions? Is it the contract? <laughs> We're supposed to finish at 4. and answer questions for 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, we have 2 minutes. <laughs> um, do you think there's a need to justify such knowledge, or is it just time to be received? But our knowledge, how do we justify ourselves? Of course there is, you have to know, we have to know what we're talking about. Otherwise, I mean, just like they make no sense, you don't make any sense either if it's merely sociological. Sociology of knowledge is not a bad thing, it's a fact. Your knowledge, your good knowledge, is a sociology that helps you were brought up in, for most cases. Except for those few very fortunate and very blessed minority who actually did it on their own, but that's very, very great. Uh, you have to reaffirm what you were brought up with and understand why it's correct. That's true, that's what we do all the time. We learn Torah, we learn a little bit of Akshava, we learn Torah, you should know God, you should, you, should, you, should, you should believe in what you believe in because you believe in it. Uh, you have to overcome your own positive sociology. Of course I think it's positive, which is why you asked about how do we know? Good question, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. The beginning of Aleinu, if we're talking about Aleinu, is Aleinu Shaber Hadarakal. That gave birth to me in a Jewish home and not in India. Because Shalom Sabchel Kedu could go Yerazav. If I'd been born in India, I would have been a pagan. That's true. Probably. Sociology of knowledge. Very few, very few monotheists, very few uh, Indians were converted from Jews. I know of one. Very few. Sociology of knowledge is very powerful. Unfortunately, our sociology is less powerful. I know a lot of Jews who have worked in good homes who converted to paganism. What can we do? Apparently, it's less powerful. But it's, but, but, but it's true. Of course, you have to affirm. But you also thank God for, 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 for setting you on the right path. But he set you on the right path. Now, affirm based off of what, though? You have to make the path yours. How do you do that? By knowledge. By, by, by using your brain. By using your experience. More important than your brain. By using your experience. By tasting. You have to know what you're doing. If, 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 if you're learning yeshiva for a year and it tastes like dust, then you have a real big problem. You should, you should go become a pagan. But if it tastes like food, then, uh, then you're on the right there. If it tastes like... I have to be a carnivore. If it tastes like, uh, like lipstick, then Baruch Hashem. Someday you'll be a Tabat Chacham someday, as I'm always you say. If you learn a little bit, you get to every day, you'll be a Tabat Chacham someday. I got the rhyme wrong, but that's what it said. Yeah. Um, do you think uh, this form of Judaism, where you believe in Judaism, kind of as a, soci- a sociological concept, is something that can exist, like independently? I, I say that's what I said. I mean, you said we can't justify it; we just still believe in it. I just said it now. You had a question before you raised his hand. What, what, what you well, can I was going to ask his question, but I don't care. No, Judaism is not sociology. Judaism is true, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I want our sociology, the sociology of truth, not sociology of sociology. Unfortunately, not unfortunately, the let much of Jewish life is sociology. It can't be any other ways, because sociology is, is the side in which you live. But we can distinguish, if you think about it, to give an unfortunate and very painful example, Judaism as sociology doesn't distinguish between going to shul on Shabbos and going to Melon on Lag Ba'omen. But we know there's a difference because we're not only products of our sociology. Unfortunately, some people don't realize that and they wouldn't be most nefesh. They think it's Yad Ba'yabah not to go to Melon on Lag Ba'omen. 
That's a particularly painful example, but that's true in little ways. And also some other things. Not distinguish between Minak and Vid, or between truth and what we did, and filter fish, and that, you know, filter fish is Jewish, and Shabbos is Jewish. Many Jews don't know the difference. I'm talking about Jews. There was a bill in Israel a few years ago to someone suggested to ban Kukot. Kukot is not a good thing. I have no opinion. <coughs> I have no opinion about that. The fire industry is based on a lot of Tzavah al on the other hand, it's It's not quite as bad as, uh, as uh, shooting people to steal the kidneys. But okay, there was a bill in Israel to ban fun. What's the problem? Who was against that bill? There is no fun in Israel. This is not New York. In New York, there's a bill to ban fun. The people who are against it are them, but for a different reason. That's their livelihood. But in Israel, there is no livelihood. Not really. There are handful of people involved in the fur industry. Why did the bill not pass the Knesset? Because Shreimelach are made out of fur. So somebody suggested you can make the Shreimel out of artificial fur. <laughs> and they said, basically, <laughs> not of those words, but they said, the bill is coming to destroy Yiddishkeit, so we will prevent it from taking place. So not only are Shreimels, but real snake <laughs> shrimps. What are the shrimps made from? Beaver. Beaver. Oh, you're kidding. No self respect. Not beaver. Safe. Real shrimps are made from something else. It's, not, it's a little bit cheaper than than, than the mix. Especially not safe. But it's not fox. Nobody was a fox. Fox is for. Uh, the kids who are just playing on foot. It's amazing the story is true, no? It was a major political debate in Israel, and it didn't pass, because better the government should fall than I should have to wear an artificial, artificial There's all kinds of reasons to explain it, by the way. They, 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 they knew it was silly, so they explained it. You know, it's very important, men are going to say, maybe they have to do what our fathers did to us. If we don't wish rivals, then, then in the end, the kids won't, won't, won't be thrown, which may in fact be true. It may be true because of your religion's only sociology. I'll tell you a story that I heard when I was very young. And, and it's a shocking story, except that it explains a lot about American Jewry. It always bothered me. You know, we, we, we were brought up, not understand true, but we were brought up on stories in Europe. And then you'll turn around, and 90% of American Jewry is not from So I thought it was amazing. So first of all, I know that Jews in Europe are not But let's say it was true. Let's say the Jews in the Shet are awful. It is true that people who, yesterday, if the monk or the local bishop had come to them and said, either you kiss the cross or I kill you, they would have said, kill me. They were devoted to the Yiddishkeit. They would have said, Yehovah Then they got on a boat, and they went to America, and they got off the boat on a Thursday, and it came Shabbos, and they were that Shabbos. I never could understand it. I was a kid when I, when I, when I asked myself this question. I didn't understand it. And the answer is sociology. It's not sociology, it's not even sociology. In America, nobody was shown on Shabbos. So these Jews continued to go to Shul at my noses. You know that the Shuls in the East Side were packed at the Hashkamamin in Shabbos morning. Nobody dominated at 9 o'clock. That was an invention of young Israel. They dominated at 6 because they had to be at work at 8. They were most nefesh to go to Shul on Shabbos. But they went to work at 8 o'clock. Someone once told me the following story. When his father stopped, stopped eating kosher. He was a firm boy. When his father stopped keeping kosher, his father always kept kosher. He went to Shabbat Shabbos. Came to World War II. He went to the army. He was drafted. He fought in Europe. Wonderful thing. Saved, saved the world. When he was for those four years in Europe, he didn't eat kosher. He came back. discovered he not eat kosher anymore. Gefilte fish, or in his case, tell the truth, couscous, was holy. And once you broke it, it was gone. But when we talk about a story like that, that he was in the trenches in, in, in 48 when he volunteered for the Haganai. That Yeshiva was volunteering. He was fighting with other food soldiers. They didn't know how to fight. They were sort of fighting, whatever. They were in Latrun. Many people were killed because they didn't know how to fight. And next to him was another Jew. And it was also a from guy. And then there was a kasha about whether or not on Shabbos they should be mad or something. So that was Tamchach. And we said, it's not the way. You know, it's because of And the guy said, no, we, we have to show, you know, how tough we are. And he didn't do it. And then they both, Baruch Hashem, survived. And we talked about him two years later. He was fried. He wasn't, he wasn't from anymore. When you broke his, his, his incorrect from guy, because it broke, a few days later, or whatever, he had to do something. But to him, nothing, nothing was right or wrong. It was all, this is what we do. And once he stopped doing it, so he stopped doing everything. 
Sociology is a terrible thing in Yiddishkeit, but it's definitely, it's impossible to ignore it. You know, we, we live in a Jewish society, we train our kids sociologically, we take them to shul. And I had an argument this morning with the Gabbai of the street minion in which I have been davening until recently. The minion has not yet been canceled. And finally I said, I'm not going to this minion anymore. So I wrote to the Gabbai, I said, you know, it's time to cancel the minion. He said, you know, but you know, they don't want to, they don't want to go back to shul. These are people who, I know the people, they went to three, there's not people who dabbing in the home. Now they also dabbing three times a day in, in, in the street. Before they dabbing three times a day in shul. Very few people. You broke the attendance in shul. It's nice to dabbing in the street, at least in the summertime. Last Rosh Hashanah, they dabbing in my garden. It was beautiful. The wind was blowing, the trees were talking, the birds were chirping. It was an amazing feeling. You dabbing with birds. What could be better? The Shemayin is in Kotel. They don't want to go back to shul. So I wrote to him, but you know, the Gemara says, It's a waste of time to dive in the street. So he says, yeah, but you know, I mean, he said to me, you know, you used to dive in, what's his job? You used to dive in the guy's house across the street, and years you dive in there. And he said, yeah, occasionally I dive in the house, but, but we should just close down the shuls because they're no longer sociologically important and discovering how much fun it is to dive in the street. Sociology is the way we live. We should try all the time to overcome it, to, 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 but it, it takes time and it takes work, and you can you can you can you can swim it in while you while while doing the work. You can assume that Jewish life is good because it's been good for two thousand years, but in the end you have to reaffirm every single aspect of it. It'll take you one hundred twenty years to reaffirm all the aspects of it. But keep working on it. But and, and, and when you get to something which makes no sense, or which is no longer possible, or which is no longer necessary, or which is causing a problem, you throw it out the window and and and, and keep the important things covered. Okay, time's up. Got another